The air we breathe, the water we drink, the soil that grows food for our families. These basic elements are essential to healthy, happy lives. America's corn growers think so too. Across the country, they're pitching in every day and doing the work to produce food and fuel that is healthy in a sustainable way. Go to ncga.com to learn more about how corn farmers grow a more sustainable future for us all. That's ncga.com. Veterans, you may have earned a variety of VA benefits. Did you know VA can help you further your education and pursue professional training? The Home Loan Guarantee Program can help you buy, repair, or adapt a home. VA provides housing support if you find yourself homeless or at risk of homelessness. And don't forget world-class health care. Learn more about these and other VA benefits. Visit choose.va.gov. Je me souviens d'une voix de femme. Reste avec nous. Qui est-elle? Pourquoi me dit-elle ça? Où suis-je? Je me suis ouvert les yeux, une pièce inconnue, l'hôpital, un médecin. J'ai demandé une seule question. Qu'est-ce qui s'est passé? Comme seule réponse, tu es arrivé avec des policiers. Tu leur parleras plus tard. Non, tout de suite. Épuisé, désorienté, j'ai flanché. Un homme debout près de moi. Je suis policier. Dites-moi qu'est-ce qui s'est passé. Une réponse, celle que je voulais pas. Je le sais pas. Comment on va faire pour le savoir? Je me souviens de la feuille de déposition, du crayon, de la tablette improvisée. Je me souviens de ma question. Mais tu veux que j'écrive quoi? J'ai écrit. Peu. Je dormais dans mon lit, dans ma chambre. Je me souviens de tes mains sur ma gorge. Je me souviens de ton odeur. Je me suis souvenu de toi. Épuisé, désorienté, j'ai flanché. J'ai ouvert les yeux. Une nouvelle pièce. Où suis-je? Qu'est-ce qui est encore arrivé? Devant moi, un policier. Le même. Ses yeux bleus, muets. Sur la table du lit, une boîte blanche. Qu'est-ce qu'il y a dans la boîte? J'ai cru qu'on m'emmenait une réponse. Non. C'était une trousse médico-légale. Un nouveau policier pour prendre des photos de mes blessures. J'arrive pas à bouger. Lui arrive pas à photographier. Place-moi comme tu veux, je peux vraiment pas t'aider. Tu me le dis, hein, si je te fais mal. J'ai rien dit. Épuisé, j'ai flanché. This is Who Killed Teresa, and I'm your host, John Elor. Twice by rattlesnake. 
for a while now I've wanted to do um, a podcast on the unsolved murder of uh, Guilain Patvin um, for no particular reason it's just sort of stuck in my head for a while it's uh, it's separated by time and place from some of the cases I've traditionally addressed on this podcast uh, it, it doesn't take place anywhere near Montreal or Sherbrooke the crime occurred in uh, in northern Quebec in the Saguenay uh, region. It doesn't take place in the 70s, 80s, or 90s. Uh, it occurred in uh, uh, the year 2000. But um, I guess I have some sort of a, a, an affinity to it uh, because of some commonalities that have uh, less to do with uh, criminology and uh, MOs and that sort of thing. Um, number one, uh, Patvin was a, a Sejep student. My sister was a Sejep student. Um, both my sister and uh, Guilain Patvin were 19 years old when they died. Um, and both, uh, in, in the case of Guilain, she uh, was murdered in her home uh, near um, the the college Sejep where she was studying and my sister of course was found within a mile of where she lived in Compton Quebec so I guess for those reasons um uh, it's always sort of nod at me and uh um I've um written sporadically about it over the years on uh, on my website uh, occasionally when things come up in the case but um uh recently I noticed uh that there's, apart from anything I've written, um, English language um, stories on Guilain are virtually non-existent. In fact, I think they are, are non-existent. Uh, she uh, lived and died in uh, Jonquière, Quebec, uh, which is about as far away and French as, as you can you can get in Quebec. Um if you're in Montreal, it will take you two to three hours to drive north um, to Quebec City. And then in Quebec City, that's sort of your last stop. You can take the Pierre-Laporte Bridge back over to the um, the south shore of Quebec. And, but when, once you go north past that, you are on the north shore of Quebec, and there's, apart from a ferry, there's no way really to get, I, I mean, it's it's all part of Quebec, but it feels isolated. And you have to drive about two and a half hours north of Quebec City in order to get to Jonquière. So, as I say, it's a very, very uh, isolated um, place, and I think for that reason... Um, just aren't very many English people living there, and that's why probably the English media has never, ever covered it. Uh, nevertheless, I think it should have some attention. It's a 18-year-old cold case now, going on 18 years, um, and um, you know to start us off, I'm gonna I'm just gonna read some details from the Certificates Cold Case website. Uh, featuring uh, Guilain Potvin. Uh, the SQ took over the case um, for reasons which will become uh, obvious. I think they took it over, uh, um, I want to say, uh, eight to ten years ago. It was originally in the hands of the local Jonquière police municipal force. So here's what they say on, on the site. 
On the morning of April 28, 2000, Guilain Patvin, a student at the CGEP in Jonquière, was found dead in her apartment on Rue Panet in Jonquière. She shared the apartment with two girlfriends, students also who were absent on the night of the events. Elements of the investigation have shown certain similarities with another file concerning an event in Saint-Foy in July 2000, in which another student living alone was assaulted in her apartment. The latter, who was left for dead, was more fortunate. She survived. If you have any information that could help solve this crime, contact uh, Central Information Criminal at the Sûreté du Québec at one 800 659 Four two six four. So, as I say, there's there's very little um, information on this on this case, probably because of its isolation, um, and it. Um, well, let's just leave it at that. But one of the best sources is uh, Claude Poirier on his show Poirier Enquête did twenty two minutes on uh, Guillaume Potvin uh, on that murder. And even if you don't speak French, um, I mean, after this episode, you can can watch it and get um, a sense of it. I'll post it on um, the website. Um, Claude uh, interviews um, two friends, uh, a schoolmate and uh, one of uh, one of her roommates. Uh, she interviewed uh, the parents, um, a professor, a teacher who knew Guylaine. Um, the the second victim is briefly featured, and then. Then they uh, interview the uh, Sarté de Québec uh, spokesperson uh, Guy Lapointe uh, is interviewed as well for a status on on the case. Um, so some of the things we we learn from that is um, on the on the morning she dis, uh, she she um, she died, uh, and we presume she died either th- th- uh, late Thursday evening or early uh, Friday morning. So Friday morning, um, as was her habit, her her friend phones the house, um, presumably because they're going to meet up and they're going to walk to school together. She phones and there's no answer. She phones again, there's no answer. It's not a big deal. She figures, well, maybe Guilain's taking a shower or something. So she she just comes right over um, to the house. Um, now, Guylaine did not lock the doors that night, in spite of the fact that her she was alone and her other roommates weren't coming home. So the friend enters, and she calls her name, and there's, there's no answer. She checks the shower. Uh, she checks the kitchen. Uh, no one's there. And then finally, she checks the bedroom, and she sees that Guylaine is there and assumes, well, no big deal. She slept in. She's still sleeping. Um but then she she looks closer and uh, she says she notices that her face was not right, that she was not sleeping, uh, and that something was dreadfully wrong. She rather bravely checks the remaining rooms in the house for an intruder, and when she is confident that the house is empty, she phones nine one one. Um, and she does notice that many things in the, in the room were displaced. Uh, and uh, I believe uh, Guilain is lying face down on the bed. Um, and as the news media 
reports over and over and over, and I, and I believe uh, Claude uses this refrain as well. In this order, they report she was beaten, raped, and strangled. And um, in a moment, we'll get to why that is potentially problematic. Uh, police arise, obviously, they, they process the scene, the roommates come home, uh, etc. And uh, one, of, one of the most telling things about this crime is it's noted that things are missing. Um, uh, a ring that uh, Guilain wore on her uh, on her right hand ring finger is missing, as well as other objects, uh, including uh, many photographs of Guilain. Um, and uh, Poirier questions uh, the, the friends, um, uh, asking if they uh, if they still live in fear. Uh, in in the uh, in the episode, they're obviously they're in silhouette. They're, we don't learn their real names or get to see what they look like. And the friend says that it, it's uh, it's not as bad as it was in the early years, but she still she always locks her her door um, because it's uh, it's been a long time since this person has still not been been caught. Um, in the course of the investigation, the police will uh, eliminate 12 suspects through DNA. They will interview over 300 uh, persons and still to this day uh, unsolved. Some of the more striking thing about this episode of uh, Poirier Enquête that you won't get in reading like print journalism or something uh, you'll only get visually. Uh, number one is, um, I think, the profound respect the Quebec people have for Claude Poirier. I mean, he's he's been a journalist and negotiator for, I, I, I believe, at least 50 years. Um, and there's a, there's a moment in the episode where he calls up the family of Guilain and um, speaks to the mother and says, can I come over now? She says, yes. And he says something like, is the coffee hot? And she says, of course, Claude, you know, something like always for you, you know, something like, you know, it would it'd be very easy for the Quebec people to allow uh, Claude into their home to d- discuss something of a very personal nature, which they do. And um, the scene is filmed at the kitchen table with with the mother and father and coffee and and biscuits um, as it as it should be. It's um, um, and I would say uh, Claude's usually pretty tough, right? But he's clearly in this episode moved um, uh, by the mother and f- father, and uh, at one point asks them, "Do you think you can turn the page?" And of course, the, how does how does one answer a question like that? Um, the second thing on a more more humorous note is um, I didn't know this, but the uh, the police uh, spokesman for Sarté de Québec um, is, uh, as I say, is Guy Lapointe, and and I've met Guy, um, yeah. But what I didn't know until recently is Guy Lapointe is the son of legendary hockey player and Hall of Famer Guy Lapointe um, of uh, those Stanley Cup winning Montreal Canadian teams along with uh, 
you know, a line of defense um, along with uh, Serge Savard and Larry Robinson that was unparalleled. And relatively recently, the, the Hells Angels in Quebec threatened both um, uh, Guy Lapointe of the SQ and his father, retired Hall of Fame hockey player, which is um, astounding that you would threaten such people. I think something like that would uh, backfire extremely. And anyway... Uh, in the episode, I, I don't know why, but uh, Claude interviews uh, Guy Lapointe in, uh, it looks like this Sarté de Québec's parking garage. It's like this deep throat moment, and I don't I don't really know why they're both in the, in the parking garage. Um, but nevertheless, there they are. Um, Lapointe um, addresses in the episode uh, a number of things, but including the second victim who survived, the survivor, and confirms that, um, as he puts it, souvenirs were also taken in the in the second case. And um, from the way he talks, I suspect um, what was taken was also photographs. The the last thing I'll mention is uh, in in questioning one of the roommates, um, she notes that uh, after the event. Um, she kept a plant of Guilin's and for 15 years she's been nurturing that plant keeping it alive which is one of the most touching things I think I've, I've ever heard in my life next and the timing of events is is interesting uh in in 2005 on a television series in quebec called uh, qui a tué um uh, the the second victim is interviewed and i gather this is the first time that we we learn in this in, uh interview that two months after the murder of Guilin uh, Potvin. Uh, there was a second attack on the night of July 3rd, 2000. This time in um, Saint Foy, Saint Foy, um, which is a bedroom community of Quebec City. Um, uh, again, a young woman, a woman of 20, 21 years of age, also a student, uh, a student studying. Um, at the University of Laval in Quebec City. And interesting, both both victims live in basement apartments uh, dans la sous-salle, it's called, um, these, these kind of block apartment buildings, remarkably similar to each other. Um, and they're both attacked at night by intruders. Uh, in the case of uh, Guilin, the door is open. In the case of the second victim... Uh, the door is locked, so it is um, it is um, confusing as to exactly how uh, the assailant uh, got in. Uh, the second victim lives on the Rue uh, Chapdelaine um, in Saint-Foy. Um, 
And uh, so in, in short order, the, um, the Sarté de Québec, of course, get involved. And by 2008, um, they were able to confirm a connection um, on, uh, of the two attacks, rapes, um, through uh, DNA testing, that they are indeed uh, 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 connected by physical evidence. And they also confirm at that time um, the matter that uh, Guilain's Parfum's uh, ring was missing and two, two photographs at that time. Now, later, um, about 10 years after the event in 2010, the second victim gives uh, an, an, an interview for uh, a TVA Nouvelle, a television program with uh, Jean-Francois Guérin, um, in which she says, um, in her words, um, someone entered my, my house um, and came into my bedroom when I was sleeping and uh, strangled me while I was sleeping. Um, she goes on to, uh, to say, uh, at that point, I, I blacked out uh, at that moment. Um, and, uh, of course, she's rushed to the hospital um, and she, she says she went through a medical treatment that was very hard. Um, and she speaks that this person um, stole a grand and a, a great important part of her life. What also comes out in that interview is that, again, objects were stolen. Uh, we presume photographs, but um, more telling a a piece of jewelry, um, as in the case of Guillain Gasselin. In this case, it's it's uh, the jewelry is a is a bracelet. Um, and I know conventional wisdom around these things suggests that um, the uh, offenders uh, take souvenirs as a means of uh, reliving the the crime, re-experiencing um, the. Uh, the ecstasy of the crime, whatever. Uh, I, I'm going to suggest a, a different idea. Uh, and I, I don't have any research to back this up, but um, I, I often wondered if they don't take objects as a means of of justification of to suggest saying, well, I really meant to rob the person. It was really burglary. Um, but things got out of hand. So I'm not really a murderer. What I am is a, a, a robber as a means of downplaying the severity of their crimes. As I say, I have nothing to back that up, but it's sort of an, an inverse um, suggestion of the, the common hold, held opinion that the, the souvenirs are, are for um, reliving the event. Uh, I would suggest they might be um, a more... Uh, a, a, a self-justification of uh, da downplaying the severity of the crime. Last spring, I received the following email. Dear Mr. Allure, I'm the second victim in the case of Guilain Patve. I would like to ask you to update your informations about our case. Your website, Who Killed Teresa?, is using as a reference for others, for blogs, websites, etc., about unresolved murders, and your informations aren't up to date. I need your help to diffuse useful information. You could use the SQ's official information. She sent me a French link and an English link. 
or more complete information from this article from TVA Nouvelle. Thank you so much. Sorry, I can't sign my email with my real name. And she sent it from an account called Isabeau. And that began my relationship with Isabeau. Now, I can tell you when I first uh, received this, I, of course, updated all the links because they were dead links. Um, but shortly thereafter, um, began communicating about things. And um, it was actually Isabeau who suggested, requested um, that I do a, a program on the two cases, Isabeau Guilin, part 20. Um, and I was very hesitant at first to do this. In fact, the, uh, I've been down this road before, and it often doesn't end very well. Um, and <clears throat> victims of crime, any certainly violent crime, um, uh, we have baggage. Um, uh, and the first thing I did was I went to, uh, there's some folks at the, the Women's Center, Rape Crisis Center in Sherbrooke, Quebec, who I've known for many, many years. So I contacted them and I explained the situation. And I said, you know, I I really don't have any training, any experience with this, with dealing with survivors, you know, just certainly of this nature. Um, and uh, it frankly scares me a little. And um, I've had some bad outcomes with similar situations. Uh and they wrote me back um, and suggested, uh, surprisingly, but very astutely, they said, you know, uh, John, this woman is probably contacting you because she's had such bad experiences being processed by professionals and, and police over the years. And it's now 18 years. And it, she, she probably made a very conscious decision to contact you. Um, so I, I thought about that still, I was reluctant. Um, I've done podcasts at people's requests before. I can think of one in particular that I did. Um, and after I published the podcast, I never heard from the person again. Um, I guess they didn't like it. <laughs> Nevertheless, I will say, um, uh, getting to know Isabeau has been a very good experience. Uh, it was not what I thought. She's extremely professional and collected and knows exactly what she wants. So um, I've put this off a bit. I was going to do this six weeks ago, but you know, life gets in the way. So the program I planned, I forgot. And now here we are reinventing it. Um but in order to do it, I needed to understand some things and ask some difficult questions. So I, I think it would be good um, uh, for me to reveal some of those questions and, and some of the dialogue back and forth between myself and Isabeau, the, the second victim, the survivor from July of 2000. So I wrote her a series of questions, um, some of them uncomfortable questions, and um, she basically said, you know, no sweat, you can ask me anything you want, and if there's something I want, I don't want to answer, I just won't answer it. And um, uh, 
I think one of the first questions was um, revolved around her, her treatment by the police, and uh, um, particularly, I, I asked around questions about suspects, and she said that the police never, of course, gave her names or information about suspects or about the modus operandi in the Guillain Patvin uh, case. Although, um, what um, what she reveals here. Uh, informs certainly what most likely happened to Guillain Potvin. Um, so I think it's very important. Um, uh, one of the things she says about the police that we all know all too well is uh, 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 they said, and this Sarté de Quebec who said this, you know, we work hard, uh, but we can't tell you anything um, and we have no answers yet. And she says, after 18 years, um, um, I don't trust this kind of answer like I did in the first days. Uh, she said initially when she was dealing with the St. Foy police, uh, municipal police, and uh, certainly with the uh, Jean-Pierre police who would have been involved because of the connection, her treatment was very, very good. But when um, when the case got handed over to the Sarité de Québec, her treatment got um, less than satisfactory. Um which is a cautionary tale to anyone out there who thinks that they're going to find refuge in the hands of the Sûreté de Québec if their cases are transferred to that agency. In other questions, um, she says um, that she was living in, as we say, a bachelor basement bungalow near Laval University, about a five-minute walk. And uh, she says she was sleeping when she was strangled in her bed uh, at approximately between 2 a.m. and 6 a.m. Uh, she goes on to say <clears throat> um, that, uh, that that indeed a, a bracelet had been stolen and she did not discover it missing until two weeks later when she finally came back home. Can you imagine coming back home? I, I can't. Um, she says that... Um, uh, the the officers kept some objects, uh, descriptions as evidence, um, and one of these objects um, was probably used in the crime, uh, and that will become uh, important as we uh, as we move on. She then talks about the the event itself, um, about what precisely happened, and she says. Uh, Yes, I lost consciousness during the first seconds of strangulation. I remember that I, I, I thought I was being attacked by a bear, so I immediately stopped moving. This reflex probably saved my life. My first memories are at the hospital. I know that I personally called 911, but I don't have any memories of that at all. I really insisted, and the detective gave me the opportunity to listen to my 911 call. It was a strange moment, unreal. It was me, my voice, and my speech. But I don't have any memories of this call. As if attacked by a bear. Just, just let that soak in, just for a minute. I asked her if she was still afraid of the offender, and um, her answer is great. She says to, to be afraid of him is to tell him that he won. This privilege isn't for him. I always thought he was more afraid of me than me of him. 
We then got into some specifics of, of the order of events. And this goes back to what I was saying about how it's always reported as she was beaten, raped, strangled. Isabeau insists that that's not what happened, that she was strangled um, with the intent of strangling to death first, then beaten and raped and sexually assaulted. Um, I went on to suggest that sometimes um, offenders will 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 strangle and choke and suffocate Kate to to subdue victims to unconsciousness without the initial intent to to kill and that, that maybe this was the case in Guilin. And she insisted that no, she did not think that this was the the matter in, in her specific event. That uh, she said what what we're dealing with here is an, what she called a necrophile. Someone who strangled first to death and then had their way uh, sexually and, and assault-wise, which is um, uh, different from some some of the cases we've talked about here. I don't know which is which. Um, both are equally terrifying and, and uh, frighteningly unimaginable. Um, it's, uh, you know, in considering both of uh, possibilities, it's, it's quite frankly um, a road I don't want to go down uh, too, too deeply. But I do think um, uh, her... Her her theory on this is uh, uh, of of extreme importance. In the course of getting to know each other, there was a, certainly a setting of the ground rules for things. Uh, I I initially asked her to be on the podcast. She's very insistent that she did not want to appear on it. Um, for a while, she only wanted me to refer to her as the second victim. Um, I insisted that, that Isabeau, despite the fact that it is uh, is not her real name, is more personal and less clinical than the second uh, victim, and she finally uh, um, agreed to be referred by that. Um, and then one day, uh, she, I got an email, and she said, I wrote this text, and... Um, I read it. It's a poem in French. It's like, well, it's not a poem. It, it, it doesn't rhyme, but it's it's in verse. It's a poem about her experience, um, and it's what you hear at the beginning of the podcast. Um, and I said, uh, can, can we read it on the podcast? She she said, sure. She said, you can go ahead and read it. I said, no, I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna read it. I said, you read it. You have to read it. And she said, no, I'm not going to do that. Find somebody else to do it. And, uh, I, you know, I did, actually. I, I um, you know, I I asked uh, uh, Marie-Claude Blanchard um, to read it. Um, Marie-Claude's uh, mother was uh, was murdered, um, so we know each other. Uh, and she, she, she did it, and she did a really great version of it. Um, but within an hour of receiving that, I got an email, and Isabeau had recorded it for me. Um, and um, it speaks for itself. Um, that's why I used it at the beginning. Um, if you don't understand French, it doesn't really matter, because you can read the emotion in it, and that's the important thing. Uh, I will post both English and French versions of it online. 
um, which um, I think are of value to read them because uh, it speaks to the experience she had not only of the the assault event itself, but um, perhaps more tellingly, uh, the processing she went through uh, with the police and clinical workers after the uh, assault. One of the things I asked Isabeau at one point, I asked her what, what music did she like back at that time in 2000? I immediately got a, a reply that that question's too personal. So I rephrased it and said, um, it's, it's, it's not personal. Well, it is personal, but it's personal in a good way. I said, um, I'd like to know. I might like to use some of that music from the time on the podcast to, to give it, um, you know, some density, some flavor. And she replied, "Oh, well." Um, she said, "I liked, uh, uh, in particular, uh, the artist uh, Richard Desjardins and uh, a song, uh, first position, uh, première position." Suspects, yes, of course. Um, over the course of the last 18 years, there have been suspects, as we said at the beginning. They cleared 12 people through DNAs, DNA sampling. Um, one of the first guys they suspected was a, was a burglar named David Cote, who um, in 2008 was imprisoned in the United States. Um, but he was, he was cleared as a, a suspect. One of the main ones uh, was uh, Claude LaRouche, who I've spoken about on this program before. Claude LaRouche, 2009, uh, murders a, a corrections w a worker um, named Natasha Cornoyer, picks her up in, in Laval, uh, rapes and murders her, dumps her body in the east end of, of Montreal. Um, and they quick, the police after that event in 2009, quickly um, um, suspected uh, Claude LaRouche. Uh, LaRouche, uh, they suspected of multiple murders, none of which they've been able to prove, uh, dating back uh, to the, uh, the early 1990s at least. Uh, uh, given his age and his, um, the severity of his, uh, his track record, I would suspect LaRouche much further back than that. Um, in my mind, he's the main suspect in the Melanie Cabet murder from the uh, late 80s, 90s, 90s. Um, but uh, the, the reason that they suspected uh, LaRouche is that um, for a period he lived in, in Jonquière and offended in Jonquière uh, in, uh, in 1990. It's a decade before, but he was living there. Uh, in 1989, um, he uh, assaulted someone in Saint-Foy um, 
1991, although he was living in Saint Eustache, which is north of Montreal, um, he was he he had an infraction again in Jonquière. So this is definitely a guy that um, that got around, and uh, uh, but they tested him for a DNA match, and he didn't match. Um, so you'd be left to say, I guess it's not Claude LaRouche. Um, I don't know. Maybe it is. Maybe it isn't. Um, even the Sartre de Quebec's uh, handling of physical evidence in the past um, and the botching of investigations, I, I, I think anything is uh, up for grabs at this point. And certainly their, their reputation deserves to be called into question. So let's just leave it at that. I don't know where we go next with these cases. Um, I, you know, I rarely do this, but I, I was trolling a Reddit uh, message board. Um, um, somehow I stumbled across it. Uh, uh, Guillain Pavin was referenced in a, a message board on the Golden State Night Stalker um, East End Rapist site. And... Um, you know, I suppose anything is possible. Um, but, what, you know, one of the good things this, whoever contributed it is they they referenced uh, several Quebec cases where women were, were bound, you know, in their bedrooms. Uh, and, uh, but one of the very bad things about Reddit message board is this person, you know, uh, clearly didn't understand French and uh, admittedly so. But um, the person suggested that that, that Isabeau, the second victim, was was in, in fact a, a woman named Renee Barkley, and it's that kind of misinformation that can really get you into trouble. No, Isabeau is not her real name is not Renee Barkley. Renee Barkley was uh, an offender, a male offender from the Shakutami area in the 2000s who um, was eventually caught and incarcerated and his DNA was was indeed tested um, against the uh, the case evidence in the uh, second victim in the Guillain Potvin case and, and he he was cleared uh, so don't believe everything you read on Reddit please but one of the cases they mentioned uh, and I had forgotten about this is they um, they referenced the Diane Couture case from Sherbrooke, Quebec. Now, this this murder occurred three years earlier than the events in uh, Saint Foy and Jokier in Sherbrooke. Uh, happened in April, uh, nineteen ninety-seven. Uh, a forty-nine-year-old woman uh, named uh, Diane Couture uh, was found in her apartment on her bed, face down. Uh, her hands were bound. Um, and it referenced an unusual uh, strangulation, whatever that means. Um, now, um, the age is different, but um, it's worth noting that uh, Diane Couture uh, looked much younger uh, than 49 years old. Um, and so I, I mentioned this uh, both to... Um, to Isabeau and, and a guy I know uh, who's... Uh, who follows the Couture case quite closely. Um, and um, surprisingly, 
they had never heard of each other's cases, which which really surprised me. And, and immediately, Isabel wanted to um, she she keyed in on a few things, uh, which are telling. Number one, she wanted to know um, um, was a, a key to the house or apartment missing which suggests to me that in, in her case, where she said she locked the door, that possibly the offender gained entrance, uh, gained entry uh, by finding a key outside of the residence. You know how you hide a key, you know, for emergencies, uh, things like this. Um, the other thing that she asked is what happened to the telephone cord. And she, um, she pointed to, there's a, there's a photograph, and it's on my website, there's a photograph of the second victim's telephone. It's it's bloodied, and the cord that leads from the phone to the jack is intact. But what is missing is the cord. And forgive me, people who now only have <laughs> iPhones. Um, there was a cord back in the the day, kids, that connected the receiver to the telephone unit. And it could be quite long. Um, but in the case of the second victim, clearly in that photo, that cord is missing, um, which seems to suggest that uh, the second victim was strangled with a telephone cord. Um, and then uh, Isabeau went on to mention, uh, she said, you know, like in the case of Stefan Luce, Luce, he's been on this program. His mother was murdered in her home in 1981. Now, I'm not, I'm not aware that she was strangled by a telephone cord. I know that the, the telephone line from her home was cut from the exterior of the residence. Um, I'd need to speak to Steph about that. Um, from what I, my knowledge, uh, she was bludgeoned to death with a b- broom handle wrapped in uh, a green garbage bag and duct tape. Um, but um, nevertheless, through this, uh, it tends to suggest uh, strangulation, but, you know, improvisation by, you know, obviously uh, weapons found within the residence, uh, possibly a phone cord in the case of, uh, of uh, uh, Diane Couture. Uh, although the friend of mine who follows this case said she was bound with a, a, a rope and strangled with what he called a rope, but I am—I I don't know if it—you know—how um, rigid he is on calling it a rope. It might be just something. A, a, is a is a rope a rope or is a rope a ligature? Those are two different things. Um, and then the, the the matter of the key it would be interesting to see if. If in the case of Couture, the door was left open, she didn't lock her apartment, or somebody gained entrance through the use of an emergency key. Things to ponder. Um, uh, I'm not even aware that the Sarté de Quebec is aware of the of the Diane Couture case. It would not surprise me in the least if they were not. To my knowledge, that case is largely unknown and forgotten. And is is probably uh, in the hands of the uh, the local Sherbrooke uh, municipal police force. And I'm sure <laughs> if I if I know my 
Quebec police operations, the, the one is not aware of the other. It's interesting that in that initial uh, email uh, she sent me, uh, she says, I am the second victim in the case of Guillaume Potvin. I would like to ask you to update your information about our case. Our case. Counted a blessing that you're such a failure. Your second chance might never have come. This has been Who Killed Teresa, and I'm your host, John Allure. If you like what you hear, send us some love on iTunes or Twitter. You can follow us. Uh, I'm personally at JusticeGuy at J-U-S-T-U-S-G-U-Y. It um, would be worthwhile uh, visiting the website TheresaAllure.com, T-H-E-R-E-S-A-A-L-L-O-R-E.com, where I'll I'll post the... um, the text of the poem uh, submitted uh, by uh, Isabeau, both in French and in English. Uh, this has been Who Killed Teresa. Have yourselves a great, great afternoon. Examen gynécologique. J'arrive pas plus à bouger. Une médecin enceinte. À genoux sur le pied de mon lit. Ok, viens, on va le faire comme ça. Une seule par les jambes. Épuisé. J'ai flanché. Un appel du policier. J'ai des collègues qui veulent te parler. Un espoir. T'as peut-être enfin trouvé. Ils m'ont montré une photo. Jeune. Belle. Souriante. Tu l'avais choisie elle aussi. Elle ne se souviendra jamais, elle, de tes mains, de ton odeur. J'ai compris. On le cherchait déjà. L'enquête. L'espoir, les jours, les cris, les pleurs. Des amis questionnés, partis. Le désespoir, une promesse. On se boira du porto. Des maladresses aussi. Dans l'autre cas, au moins, on a une autopsie. Le départ, un cold case. Et la vie. Encore la vie. 18 ans déjà. Je me, je me souviens de chacune des nuits de rage. Je me souviens d'elle, de chacune de ses photos, de son gâteau d'anniversaire, de son chat, la couleur de son carnet de téléphone, ses guébouillis, son écriture. Je me souviens des yeux du policier, muet. Je me souviens de ma question. Je me souviendrai toujours de ton odeur.
The NFL season is here. Are you ready for the action? Are your picks based on intelligence? Can you track your bet's win probability of covering? Now you can with Edge Sports. Recognized as the founding fathers of NFL analytics by The Ringer, Edge Sports builds the first and most accurate NFL simulation model. Used by billion-dollar betting syndicates and Super Bowl champions, only Edge Sports brings you the Edge Fair value, powered by 100,000 customized game simulations. Advantage Scoreboard. Dive deep into the matchup to discover who has the edge in coaching, DVOA, and roster strength. Edge Bet Tracker. Follow the likelihood of your bet covering with live in-game. Download the app for free today in the App Store or Google Play or visit edgesports.com for more information. We did it again. Verizon was just named America's most reliable network by Root Metrics for the 16th time in a row, proving once again that nobody builds networks like Verizon builds networks. That's why we're building 5G right. That's why there's only one best network. Verizon. Best and most reliable based on root metrics reports from second half 2013 to first half 2021 of three operators on all network types combined. Not specific to 5G networks.